This will be the fifth and final message on the topic of wisdom from above, wisdom from God. And rather than talk about the last phrase in James 3, 17, I'm going to, which is uh, unwavering and without hypocrisy, I'll explain that at the end. What I'll do is, particularly for those um, either here or uh, in on the podcast, haven't heard the rest of the message, I'm going to give a quick, not real quick, uh, a run through of the other one, of the rest of the other four sermons so that we can see it all in context before I close off the series. The scripture is based on James chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, but particularly uh, verse 17. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, let him show his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that is from above is first, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, not hypocritical. And though I didn't, none of us knew this when uh, the sermon started, I think we can honestly say that what we're seeing in the world right now, particularly in Ukraine, is a perfect example of demonic, quote, wisdom, unquote, versus godly wisdom, where we're seeing a worldly demonic definition of what macho men define themselves, among other things. It's worldly, it's uh, creating disorder and death and evil practice, where the wisdom from above is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, open to reason, full of good fruit. So we see from the scripture that there are several points. Wisdom, as James has said, and even if you look at Johanna and John, is shown by its deeds, not just works, that actions speak louder than words, that if you're a believer, you'll prove it by your life and not in any kind of works righteousness, but the spirit of God, the Ruach Adonai, will be so prevalent in you, so powerful, that you will demonstrate it in your life. We see in the scriptures what it is not. It's not selfish. It's not jealous or boastful or contentious. Rather, wisdom from God is pure. It's holy. It's gentle. It's not hypocritical doesn't put on an act, and so on. God's wisdom is very different from the world's. It operates differently and can seem unusual to those of the world who do not know the Lord or his word. All you got to do is look at the Lord's life, because every time he would speak something to somebody, people would get mad because they simply didn't understand it. And the natural man isn't capable of understanding God without the Spirit of God empowering them and enlightening them. Where the world seeks out the powerful and well-known, God in his wisdom does the opposite. 
Paul Shaul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 31, for you see your calling brothers and sisters that not many are wise according to human standards. Not many are powerful, not many are born well, yet God chose the foolish things of the world so that he might put to shame the wise and God, God chose the weak things of the world so that he might put to shame the strong and God chose the lowly and despised things of the world, the things that are as nothing, so he might bring to nothing the things that are so that no human might boast before God. But because of him, you are in Messiah Yeshua, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, holiness and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in Adonai. And a great example of godly wisdom choosing the lowly would be the birth of Messiah Yeshua, where he was born, who he was born to, the Lord announced it to societal rejects, shepherds, people with no standing in Israel. The Lord also chose a couple with no standing, Miriam and Yosef, to raise the child. And in scripture, in the Bible, God has consistently chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. As I've said, the word of God makes it very clear that there are two types of wisdom in the world. There is the wrong type of wisdom, the wisdom from this world, the wisdom not based on the word of God, the wisdom from the demonic realm. The world is filled with half-truths, half-lies, seemingly full truths, which are not, and people spouting so-called hidden wisdom and truths. All you have to do is look at the philosophies and religions of the world. Ancient Greece was a culture dedicated to discussing the latest philosophies and religions to see if they would accept it into their culture. But as it says in scripture, as I read, and as I'll read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, but because of him, you are in Messiah Yeshua, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and holiness and redemption. We see in the scripture that Yeshua is wisdom, not the very embodiment of wisdom, for that would make the Lord beholden to something outside of him. Rather, Yeshua is wisdom from God. And uh, to trust in Yeshua is to walk in wisdom, to know the difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. And lest we mistake it, when we read, when God says he, when Paul and the Lord says he rejects the wisdom of this world, the wisdom that he's talking about in Greek means cleverness, which is more of a, a mind thing, trying to outsmart or appear powerful before people. Paul rejected speaking the wisdom cleverness of this time and era. He rejected the culture's version of wisdom and knowledge. He rejected wanting to appear wise and clever. Instead, he decided to appear foolish in everyone's eyes. Where in 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, where is the wise one? Where is the Torah scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of this world? 
foreseeing that in God's wisdom, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message proclaimed to save those who believe. So salvation is foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom that God uses to save us. And the couple of scriptures says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And the fear of the Lord, uh, Proverbs 9, chapter, uh, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And what this means is not just the first, you know, I was listening to somebody teach what that is, is the foundation to your life, that the fear of the Lord is the foundation for everything that we do after that. And in the book of Kings and Chronicles, there's a consistent message where a king is judged good or bad by whether they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord from God's viewpoint. When was the last time any of us saw things from the Lord's point of view, not men, at least on a consistent basis? The first thing that it talks about in uh, James chapter 3, verse 17 is pure. And the word is hognos. At least when I looked it up, somebody said it's hygnos. But in any case, it means free from ceremonial defilement. Also, it means holy sacred, venerable, pure, chaste, undefiled, guiltless. And synonyms include winnowed and purged. So we need to break down that definition a little. The wisdom of God is pure, means it's free from ceremonial defilement. All of us know that almost all of the sacrifices specified in the Tanakh needed to be burnt up. Then it was considered pure and acceptable to the Lord so I ask, is the wisdom we receive from a follower of Yeshua, is it free from defilement? And I have heard, I know I've mentioned it in previous sermons, I have heard a couple pastors on, on, you know, on the internet use less than perfect wisdom using sexual innuendo in, in their humor. It just sort of blew me away. One included anti-Semitic references in it. So is it free from defilement? What are the rest of the definitions? Is it holy and sacred? That is separate unto God. If it is not, then it's defiled. What about chaste? Is the wisdom free from sexual innuendo and sexual defilement? Uh, now God in his wisdom does not need to be purged with fire and winnowed with fire separating the weeds from the chaff. However, because we are sinners saved by grace, we have to be purged. We have to have our life and our wisdom burned so that it's pure. We are born sinners, and even when we are born again, we still have to struggle with the old nature. So the Lord puts us through the fire and hard times, which I think is what the body of Messiah is going through right now. Psalms frequently talks about God's wisdom. How pure is God's word? In Psalm uh, 12, verse 6, it says the words of Adonai are pure words like silver we find in an earthly crucible purified seven times. 
the word in Hebrew, tahor, means the same in English, clean, pure physically and pure and clean morally and ethically. However, it is a cleanliness beyond human cleanliness and purity beyond human purity. Now, I'm not into metallurgy, but when we purify metal, we might purify it one, two, or three times. But Psalms 12, verse 6 says it's like it's been purified seven times. So the purity of God, it's like metal purified seven times is pure beyond our wildest dreams or imaginations. Can we say we love God's pure word? The Bible states that in the last days, people will depart from the faith and will be unable to endure, hold up under the word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, talks about being unable to, under, to withstand the, the wisdom of God from the Bible. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So this scripture states that in the latter days, the end times, people will not be able to bear up, endure, and survive sound doctrine, which is, I think, what we're seeing. Actually, in the Greek, the English translation of endure could easily mean to bear up under. The word of God, the wisdom of God, simply becomes too much for them. Sometimes the wisdom of God could end up crushing people. Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, it says that many will be purified, talking about the end times, Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but the wise will understand. So Daniel is stating that in the end times, many will be purified and made spotless, but the wicked will become wicked. Will he do anything less with us? So if we see a believer, and I put that in quotes, acting worldly and wicked, is he a believer? Maybe not. Probably not. The Lord, like his words and words of wisdom, will refine and purify us. And Yeshua says that every, to those that follow after him in John chapter 15, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he trims so that it may bear more fruit. I think the scripture is related to holiness and purity in our lives. Just as the Lord gives us purity in his scripture and in his wisdom to do our everyday things in our lives, so he looks for us to bear fruit, fruit according to his standards. If not, he is apt to remove things in our life to get our attention. If we still don't pay attention, he might take away our life and bring us home. Even if he does see fruit, he will trim us, refine us, put us through more fire, so that we can become more pure, more fruitful, according to his definition. And as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything worthy of praise, well on these things. So I think that's why Paul, James, excuse me, chap, chose pure first because it's 
the most important, but the other words he used was peaceable. And it, I'll quickly go through these definitions. Peaceable relates to peace, uh, loving peace, bring peace with it, peaceful, salutary. The English de definition of peaceable means inclined to avoid argument or violent conflict. Peaceful in character or intent, producing good effects and beneficial. So the word of God comes with shalom, wholeness, healing, peace. Yeshua said in Luke chapter 10, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Because the wisdom from above produces peace, it can only come from the Lord and in communion with him, especially when he chastens us. The result is which I was looking I saw a meme, I guess you'd call it, online, and it says what we're seeing isn't a result of God turning his back on us. It's a result of our turning our back on God. And that's why we're not seeing a lot of peace right now is because we've turned our back, you know, we turned our back on God. We're reaping what we're sowing. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Finally, brethren, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And the author of Hebrews uh, verse 14 says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Here we see another command of God, if at all possible to pursue peace with all men and the road to holiness and sanctification, which is the balance of being peaceful. We live at peace with all men, but we need to be holy and sanctified unto the Lord. We can pursue peace, but not at the cost of sanctification. Otherwise, we run the risk of shipwreck. Another word that the wisdom of God is gentle, means seemly, fitting, equitable, fair, moderate, appropriate. Wisdom from God is seemly, it's proper, it's good taste, it's polite, it's restrained, it's fair, it's impartial. Seemly, it seems to conform to accepted notions of propriety or good taste. So we see something similar to the word use of the word pure from the last teaching, the last word. Wisdom from above is pure, it's seemly, it's proper and good taste, it's polite and restrained. Wisdom from above is not evil, it does not act rude, does not talk rudely, it treats people with politeness. Yet because it is pure and holy, it still speaks the truth to people, whether they want to hear it or not. Another word is reasonable. The word wisdom from God, wisdom from above is reasonable, which means it's ready to obey. It's obedient, it's compliant, easy to entreat, full as the full measure of things, thoughts, feelings, full of virtue, goodness, and mercy. So when we act on the wisdom from God, it makes us obedient, compliant, not mindless, easy to entreat. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, let your gentle spirit be made be known to all men. The Lord is near. 
in Titus chapter 3, verse 2, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing consideration for all men. <coughs> or as Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. So wisdom from above is reflected in our lives and will be obvious to everyone. And we won't be prone to extremes or idolatry. Another trait of the wisdom from God is full of mercy. Although that, that word translation depends on the translation, Bible translation. True godly wisdom is, as the scripture states, full of mercy and all of the good things that flow from living that way. Full of compassion to others and to the poor, in the poor in spirit. Uh, an expository dictionary I was looking at, Vines, states that it is an outward manifestation of pity. It assumes the person receiving the mercy needs it and the resources necessary to meet the need. In other words, wisdom reaches out. Mercy reaches out. Grace and mercy are said to be two sides of the same coin. Mercy is God not punishing us for our, as our sins deserve. Grace carries the idea of compassion and kindness like mercy, but also carries the idea of bestowing a gift or favor. Mercy can be thought of as a subset of grace. An example would be mercy as a deliverance from judgment, and grace is extending a blessing to the unworthy, which is our life. God had mercy on us by delivering us from sin. And then whether even actually, even if we're not a believer, our, all our life is an act of grace. So we see that wisdom from God brings, besides being pure, peaceable, gentle, and compliant, is also full of mercy. Mercy to those that need it and are willing to repent, change their lives to receive it. Mercy from God is pure. It brings peace, is gentle and compliant. It's not selfish argumentative and violent. Another trait of the wisdom from above is good fruit. From the word agathos, it's good in a physical and moral sense for the person that comes in contact with it. We can kind of see the interrelations of all these words is it, it's not just what it is in a physical sense, but in a moral, ethical, and biblical sense. They're all interwoven just like Shalom is not just peace, but it's wholeness and wellness and everything else. It's all interrelated. Uh, fruit is karpos, the fruit of trees, vines, fields, also metaphorically of words and deed. So good fruit is meant to be picked and eaten. So the question is, what is the biblical definition of fruit? We have already defined the fact that our wisdom is to be displayed in our lives toward others. It's not supposed to be hoarded, must become under a judgment. And we're not supposed to like the, the wise men in some of these other religions sitting on a mountaintop or some guru spouting wisdom, but really having no intention of living it or actually doesn't live it. He spouts it, but doesn't actually live it. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, verse 16 through 20, you will recognize them by their fruit. Grapes aren't gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree 
produces good fruit, but the rotten tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire, so then you will recognize them by their fruit. So the fruit that are on trees and uh, bushes and other plants is meant to be picked and used and eaten by other people, otherwise the fruit just dies and rots. And so here we see Yeshua stating he expects us to bear fruit to be shared and eaten by others. And Yeshua asked the rest of us to be fruit inspectors. Is it based on scripture? Is it from God? Is it Yeshua focused or is it man focused? Does it result in the peaceable fruit of God? Therefore, the wisdom we share with others must be biblically based because that is the fruit Yeshua is looking for and he is the final and only judge on what is good fruit and what is bad fruit. An example would be in the letters to the book of Revelation, letters to the seven congregations in chapter two and three, which we just studied. He judges the congregations based on their fruit, what they're doing and not doing, and his standard is the only standard he uses. He doesn't use our standards of the world. As John, Yeshua said in John chapter 15, verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And as, I, as we've mentioned before, every branch that bears fruit, he trims so that it may bear more fruit. Continuing as he says, abide in me and I will abide in you. The branch cannot bear, cannot itself produce fruit unless it abides on the vine. Likewise, you cannot produce fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Yeshua further states that unless we abide in him, we will never produce the fruit that he approves of. And the last two phrases in uh, James 3.17 is, in the translation I was looking at, is unwavering or without hypocrisy. The wisdom from above is unwavering. It's without partiality. It's not mixed. There's that word again. It's not mixed with things that aren't of God. It's without uncertainty. It's impartial. It shows no favoritism. It's without hypocrisy. The Greek anipokritos, at least it was in my, when I was looking it up. And hypocrisy is what the, comes from Greek actors. They used to put on masks on their face. If you ever went to the theaters, particularly as a kid, and you used to see these two little masks on the curtain or something like that. That's based on the old Greek theater where you didn't know the person under it. The mask would hide the person. And James is saying that the wisdom from above is without hypocrisy. There's no acting. It's genuine. It's sincere. There's no dissimulation. There's no, as you say, concealing of one's thoughts, feelings, character. There's no pretense. There's no concealing of true motives or beliefs. So in other words, God's wisdom is to use the common vernacular straight up, so to speak. 
What you see is what it is. There's no second guessing. So in conclusion, the wisdom from above is pure, is free from defilement. It's holy, it's sacred, it's chaste. There's no hint of worldliness or filthy thoughts. It's peaceable, gentle, fitting, equitable, fair, moderate. It's appropriate. It's easy to obey. It's full of virtue, goodness, and mercy. It is fruitful in that it is meant to be shared with others, not just for someone to just speak mindless, meaningless thoughts. Lastly, it is unwavering, it's impartial, it's not mixed with ungodly things. It doesn't put on an act or force you to do that. It is straightforward, not forcing you to conceal your thoughts, feelings, or character. Amen.